Hello there and welcome to episode 73 of Right Where You're Sitting Now. Um, we're back, joining me in the uh, hot seat once again, uh, the monosyllabic responder, um, <laughs> Mr. Mark Satir. How are you doing, sir? I'm, I'm sat here just nodding my head. Oh, okay. So. I've, I've gone into non-verbal state. <laughs> non-verbal state. Um, yes, yeah, so you may have noticed in the last episode that we had a a strange interlude with a badly placed uh, advertisement and I kind of wanted to apologize for that because I didn't actually have a control over well I did but they just ignored it <laughs> it's a long story basically I gave them a timestamp to, to for where to insert the advert and they missed it somehow and so it probably sounded like a bit of a mess so apologies for that um, and I think this ad isn't running anymore um, so you're probably just going to hear the sound for a commercial break and then go what the hell's going on but yeah I'm going to start inserting audio sounds somewhere in the middle of the interview for where we have adverts placed in and hopefully i'm going to make it quite wide so they can't miss it um you, but it, anyone that's listened to the last episode will know what i mean and yeah apologies for that that's that was uh that was not the intention for that and uh it was it made us seem quite tardy when we actually weren't which is a bit annoying but anyway off such matters um what are we talking about this week mr satir what does the word ozark conjure up Mountains, misty mountains, verdant forest stretching as far as the eye can see. Old timers living out in the the wilderness there, with their traditions. Perhaps there's a, a hairy mountain devil out in the in the forest there somewhere peeping out. Who, who knows? Who knows what mysteries there might be? Well, one person knows or explored those mysteries, and that's uh, a gentleman called Brandon Weston. And uh, he's he's uh, produced two books at the moment, as as we're aware of. Ozark uh, folk magic, uh, plants, prayers, and healing, and Ozark mountain spellbook, folk magic and healing. So, um, and then if you feel naturally drawn to sort of uh, traditional witchcraft, that's the only thing. I, that was the thing that seems to sort of jump out most to me. The, the, the most relatable thing. It, from my experience but of course it's a tradition in itself so you, you may well be coming from that tradition and uh, that is what we, we we will be benefiting from today yeah anyway let's uh, cut over to interview with mr brandon weston Hello, Brandon Weston. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, I was wondering, could you give us a brief biography of yourself, please? Sure. So I'm Brandon Weston. I'm a spiritual healer, folklorist, and writer living in the Arkansas Ozarks. And uh, my, my specialty is studying traditions of folk magic and folk healing specific to the Ozark Mountain region. And um, so that includes lots of lectures and writing and all sorts of stuff promoting uh, Ozark folk culture. Yes, for, obviously, we're in the UK, and there's going to be a bunch of people that don't know what the Ozarks are or where they are. I was wondering, could you give us like a, a kind of a geographical kind of uh, pointer? Sure. So it's, it's kind of always been a part of the Ozark story. You know, we're not quite the, the South. Um, you know, we're not the Deep South. We're not quite the Midwest. 
or the Great Lakes region. We're kind of stuck in the middle in between. Uh, so the, the Ozark Mountain region sort of encompasses south, uh, southern Missouri, northwestern Arkansas, a little bit over into Oklahoma to the west, and then a little bit into Kansas. So we're generally considered a part of the Midwestern region of the U.S., uh, but our culture is actually closer to Appalachian folk culture, and we're actually considered a part of the greater Appalachian cultural region still. Okay, that's interesting, because I've, I've, I've heard that pronounced two different ways, Appalachian and Appalachian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Generally, if you're, if you're in the north, it's Appalachia. If you're in the south, it's Appalachia. So... <laughs> I guess a bit confusing, I bet. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> so it's an all-encompassing all term, an umbrella term for a culture and um, an area and 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 a, a, a group of people. And a, well, that's a community, isn't it? A, a community. I mean, my, I must confess, actually, that the profundity of my ignorance about this subject <laughs> is is uh, is sort of beyond measure. I mean, I only had a very vague, very vague notion of what the word ozarks actually meant until i read the book so so that there we are you've enlightened you've enlightened one person <laughs> one benighted part of the universe so there we are excellent uh, so to, um yeah actually talk, let's talk a bit about the kind of the culture what's it what's it what's it like in the ozarks i suppose you know, what, what mm -hmm. the people like gives a kind of a flavor if you could well so i'm gonna make a long a long story short so the uh because i i honestly could go on and on just about ozark culture, uh, you know, for hours on end, but I won't bore you. Uh, but, you know, Ozark cultures really started with the settlement of the Ozark region around the turn of the 19th century. Um, at the time, there was the Indian Removal Act. Uh, so the Cherokee were being removed, the Muscogee Creek. Um, it's the Trail of Tears time. Uh, so around that time, the indigenous people to the Ozarks were the Osage and they were removed from their land and um, put on, you know, reservations in Oklahoma. At that time, the land opened up for anybody that wanted to settle it, basically. And the people that were crazy enough, I guess, to travel all the way to this very wild landscape were uh, pretty much uh, hill folk families from Appalachia, which is why we're still a part of the sort of Appalachian cultural region. So hill folk families you know, went west and settled into the, the Ozark region. And they brought with them a culture that had already been brewing and mixing in Appalachia. And that was a mixture of, you know, different European cultures, including pan sort of British Isles culture, as well as a large amount of German folk culture. And so all of that had sort of been mixing in Appalachia, then came to the Ozarks and in the isolation of the Ozarks, it really sort of grew and it uh, evolved and new things were brought in. Uh, the region has been isolated for quite a while. Today, of course, urbanization has kind of brought a lot of things to the area, but up until the mid 1900s, you know, 1930s and 40s, um, there were a lot of areas in the Ozarks that didn't have running water, that didn't have electricity, things like that. And still to this day, you can find these isolated rural areas that are still, you know, using a well for their water and don't have electricity and don't have access to, you know, modern healthcare, things like that. But I will say that there there is a difference between what we call the old Ozarks and modern Ozarks. 
Um, you know, around the turn of the 20th century, things started changing in the Ozarks folk culture. There was a folk revival. So that's where a lot of the, the folklorists, if you know Vance Randolph, uh, who was a uh, Ozark folklorist in, you know, 1920s and 30s, this is when there was a folk revival in the Ozarks and everybody was sort of getting interested in that. But at that time, it really became the sort of Disneyland version of the Ozarks. This is where this sort of hillbilly stereotypes came in, city folk going out to the hills to look at, you know, uh, toothless, shoeless, hill folk, that sort of thing. And so that, that image has really stuck with the area, even though today, if you were to drive around the Ozarks, we're still very rural, very wooded, but we have big cities. We have Northwest Arkansas, where I am, is a massive, uh, basically mishmash of three different big cities that have sort of grown in together. And so part of the role that I have as far as writing, but also being a part of this living culture is updating the story. That really was one of the driving forces for publishing was I really wanted to show people where our traditions are today, how they've evolved to the modern world, how healers and magical practitioners are working today. Because for so long, the, the one image of Ozark folk traditions, especially healing and magic traditions has been, you know, this sort of stuck in time museum exhibit from the early 20th century that the folklorists gave us. And that is what people think the Ozarks are today. And that is far from the truth. Um, you know, the informants, the people that Vance Randolph was talking to in the early 1920s, 1930s, I mean, a lot of these people lived through the Civil War. So it's a very different culture than it is today. So that's where I am today is updating the story. I'm, I'm not getting rid of any of the traditional practices, but I'm saying, I'm, I'm looking at it in a realistic way. I'm saying, you know, these, these practices aren't really around anymore. We have to look at where the practices are today, how the traditions have evolved and how they can continue to evolve into the future. Um, otherwise, if we just stick with this sort of stuck in time image, um, the culture is definitely going to die. Yeah, it's, it's definitely, uh, it's, it's kind of like, almost like a combination of archiving and updating then the, the books. Absolutely, yeah. And one of the, the sort of I guess drives for me is, you know, I'm, I'm also a practitioner uh, of this, this folk magic and healing traditions. And so the, you know, folk healers and magical practitioners, at least in the Ozarks, you know, we haven't really been able to tell our story. It's always been folklorists or storytellers telling stories about us. And so that's been kind of another area that I've been really passionate about is getting stories from healers themselves, um, not just, you know, <laughs> relying upon what people are saying about healers, because I mean, of course, that's, that's going to be very different from the actual truth of the situation. Hmm. Did you have an interest in any other kind of a culture, I suppose, like Western esotericism or anything like that? Or? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty eclectic <laughs> with my interests. And so I, I, well, I mean, one of the things I really like doing is being able to connect you know, my own sort of cultural folk practices to, you know, back to their sources that, uh, you know, there's a lot of folk practices here in the Ozarks that you can trace directly back to, you know, British magic cunning tradition, as well as Braukerei in Germany. And so that's, that's one of the things that I really like doing is being able to make those connections. 
And because our tradition is so diverse and such like a melting pot of different things, it's really interesting to be able to sort of parse out how those cultural traditions have come into the area and evolved. And so, yeah, in doing that, um, yeah, like I said, I'm pretty eclectic in my interest area. So I've done a lot of research in, you know, Southern root work, hoodoo, brow karai, powwowing, also cunning craft, cunning tradition, things like that. Did you, uh, were you ever um, a member of any groups before or? No, uh, so um, no, I'm not a member of like the Rosicrucians or the OTO or anything like that. <laughs> okay, that's cool. So, um, how did you actually become interested? Because I think there's a there's a good story here, isn't there, in how how you kind of became interested in Ozark magic? Sure. So I I guess I got interested really in college, but I guess the story began when, you know, when I was a kid. So I come from a multi-generational Ozark family. And one of the things about Ozark folk culture is that a lot of the practices that we have have become sort of ingrained within the culture to such an extent that it's just mundane. Um, So I grew up with a lot of stories that were told about, you know, magical creatures and um, healers. And I had a great uncle who was a wart charmer, so he could buy warts off of people. He could also stop blood, uh, like from a bleeding wound, things like that. But honestly, even though I grew up with this stuff, I never thought it was weird. I, I never, I just assumed that everybody sort of had this stuff in their family. And so, you know, pretty soon I figured out that that wasn't the case and that there was something here. And really my interest started with Vance Randolph, um, who I mentioned earlier. And I found his work in college when I started college and I started reading his Ozark magic and folklore. And he was talking about war charmers. He was talking about blood stoppers. He was talking about all the stuff that my family had been talking about. So at that point, I something clicked and I, I guess I realized that there was something here that I was interested in because uh, I was always the weird kid that, you know, was out in the woods picking plants and talking to trees and all this other stuff. So I had always kind of had a connection to, I guess you could say, witchcraft or this sort of traditional folk magic. Um, but then, yeah, and so in college, I, I really got interested in the actual academic aspect of of Ozark folk studies, but it always, you know, there was always this feeling of, well, this is all old stuff where, you know, what, if I go out into the rural Ozarks, am I going to find this stuff? So really that was the driving force for me to actually go out and collect things. So I started collecting for my family and then I went into the community. I went up into Missouri and across the Arkansas Ozarks and all over collecting stuff. And about halfway through that process, I sort of, I found a teacher who identified me as a healer. And so my process changed a little bit from, uh, I sort of ditched the academic pursuit and uh, started the practitioner route at that point. Yeah, it stepped over the threshold from the... Sort of the exactly. From, from the sort of uh, the paper world to the, to the, to the real world. Yeah, and that's that's where I am today. I'm sort of half practitioner, half folklorist, but I always want my the folklorist side to be very sort of 
I guess, more respectful than folklorists have been a lot of times in the past, um, because I am a part of that, that sort of practitioner culture. I know how, I know how poorly we've been treated in the past. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's an ongoing, I mean, in the future, people, will, academics in the future will look back at us and say, well, well, you know, and have uh, probably have poor opinions about parts of our, our, our way of looking <laughs> at things. And that, that's as it should right. be, says as it should be. It's like, um, I, I think you mentioned, uh, Mr. Weston, the, the, the word shaman and how, you know, that's mm. become very popular. Actually, the first time I encountered the word, and it's probably the first time, one of the early times it's been on in England anyways, was is, is through science fiction. <laughs> from the 70s so that's quite an early but you know as, but the word shaman although it's a useful word it's useful and i think that's why it's it sort of been coined becomes a kind of coinage um, right i mean, I mean it's, it's like witch which is kind of yeah. becoming that same sort of yeah, catch-all yeah. term as well yeah i mean shaman specifically i mean when nitpick about it i mean specifically it comes from siberia it's a it's a it's a very specific sort of cultural thing but i suppose people saw parallels they, they saw these parallels and it was better than what we had before which would be like witch doctor which doesn't right. really which may have made sense more to people at the time, but now it does. It doesn't have the. It's out kilter completely. So you know, again, and in the future we'll find some other term. They're only human terms anyway. So, <laughs> right. they're all limited, aren't they? So, do you think? Um, does it? There seems to be a real boom again at the moment in these kind of more traditional practices, doesn't there? I mean, we had um, uh, what's his name, Keldon, on mm-hmm. not so long ago, another Llewellyn author, and. Um, but yeah, I see it all over the place. I think it's often referred to as traditional witchcraft, isn't it? Would you mm. would you place Ozark magic in that uh, bucket? Or I think I'd place aspects of it definitely under the sort of traditional witchcraft umbrella. I tend to use um, you know folk magic and folk healing just because I think that these are more useful to describe the practices. Um, just because. You know, things are obviously changing amongst sort of neo-traditionalist practitioners in the Ozarks. But for the most part, if you encounter healers or practitioners, they don't necessarily refer to themselves as witches or, you know, the practice as magic, things like that. So I try to keep with sort of the traditional understanding of that sort of stuff, um, because, you know, in the Ozarks, you know, up until recently, really, I mean, anything to do with magic was evil. Um, and especially witchcraft, things like that. So there was a lot of sort of cultural clashing in the 60s and 70s with the New Age movement specifically um, over, you know, you had traditional healers who were had been fighting against their understanding of witchcraft for years, and then you have self-proclaimed witches sort of coming in. So I tend to use folk magic and folk healing um, just because I think they describe the practice a little bit more. But also, I, I'm, I'm well aware that, you know, a lot of what I do, it would be considered a part of like traditional witchcraft. And I don't I actually don't mind using those terms, um, especially if I'm talking to other traditional witches. Um, I think it's a, it's easier to sort of understand some of the concepts in that way. Yeah. Uh, folk magic and folk healing sort of, you know. Uh, unless especially with folk healing people tend to think you know um homeopathy and (laughs) things like that um which isn't outside of the 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 range of uh, you know practices in the ozarks but it 
it's it's not quite. Sometimes witchcraft really does uh, describe practices a little bit better. Yeah, I mean the the figure of the witch. It seems like a quite an important figure in the sort of Ozark kind of uh, worldview, traditional worldview. And it's, I can see how, you know, as a personification of sort of um, something very sinister, but powerful and mysterious. And, but at the same time, that's a very sort of, uh, it sort of, um, it, it sort of shifted a bit like the word shaman, isn't it? It sort of shifted, but yeah. it's still, but still useful. Like, uh, you know, that uh, I think you mentioned, you know, that sometimes it's the, the witch over the hill, we're going to send back the negativity or whatever, the, the, the banefulness to the witch right. over the hill. And so, the witch as in that sense it seems to be still a you know a potent a potent symbol it's an ambiguous symbol and that's part of its power i think so right and i mean still today you know especially the traditionalists um you know they still invoke the image of the witch as a part of ritual um so if they are healing somebody of a hex or a curse or something like that a lot of times they will still invoke the image of a witch um, as the sort of source of the hex, even though that image today isn't, I mean, is rarely connected to an actual physical person. Whereas, you know, a hundred years ago, it would have been, you know, in a lot of cases. Today, even though that image of the witch as sort of the symbol of evil is still invoked, it is, like you said, more so that witch over the hill or the witch that lives in the woods or the witch that's in the swamp or the witch that's on that mountain, that, that sort of image, these sort of, I like to call them the, the sort of cosmic witches or the, the spiritual witches um, that are useful targets for healing work, um, but aren't necessarily connected to an actual physical person like they would have. Which, I mean, all, all of that shows how the practice has evolved over the years. Uh, because like I said, you know, 100, 150 years ago, um, it, it, you know, fingers would have been definitely pointing at people in the community itself as a part of that healing act. Uh, naming a person wasn't a part of, you know, you had to know who sent the hex in order to cure the hex, that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, the, the, if, you, if, you get, if you take the word pharmacy, it's actually a Greek word, and it and, and origin it originates from a ritual of, uh, like uh, driving out, like um, a scapegoat over somebody who's mm -hmm. uh, like uh, somebody who's I don't know deformed in some way, or somebody who's an outsider uh, who's been scapegoated in some way, and they're either killed or driven from the community, and and that's and it's like a healing thing. It's like you know, there's a plague, right? What we're going to do, right? We'll blame this chap here, right? He looks like a likely candidate. Drive him out drive them out from the community and hopefully you know with the intention anyways that the the plague will sort of pass over and we're we're surviving and so that's so that's where the word pharmacy comes from and you can see how i mean um, we go to the pharmacy today of course without realizing without realizing that and so you can see how those uh, that's still there isn't it in that narrative it's not you know they're not calling it a pharmacy but um in that narrative <laughs> you can see a kind of echo uh, of that a sort of a ghost of that really right right yeah it's interesting yeah just a sort of side point i've been noticing in the uk at least that there's definitely been a rise in kind of um what i'd call like high street magic as in like you know palmists and astrologers mm -hmm. and have you noticed the same in the states yeah, there's definitely a sort of um, 
resurgence in both folk culture, interest in folk culture, as well as interest in, in witchcraft in general. So um, that's why I, I was saying earlier that the opinion about the witch has definitely changed amongst sort of neo-traditionalist practitioners here, because I, I have met quite a few people who I would consider to be very Ozark, very rural Ozark people who, you know, read tarot cards, call themselves witches, use crystals, things like that. And so I definitely think that today more and more people are getting interested in that sort of thing. And so it's definitely changing the folk culture as well, because if you, um, if you have practitioners, they've got to have, they have to have clients and they have to be able to talk to their clients in a certain way. So if their client comes to them asking for, you know, what crystals should I buy for this? You know, the, the healer has to evolve their practice to accommodate that sort of thing. Um, so at least in, Places around here where there are practitioners that are in a more sort of urban setting, um, I think that they are definitely being influenced by the sort of um, more new agey sort of witchcraft uh, practices, which I actually don't have a problem with new age practices. Um, I think that, it, you know, it's, it's a naughty word a lot of times, but I, I don't consider it to be. Um, so, but I definitely see practitioners that are, especially those that are in the towns and, and more urban areas around here that are definitely being influenced by the sort of resurgence in that interest in witchcraft. The, the rural people, it, it usually filters out to them a little bit later. Um, a couple of years ago, you know, when I was collecting a lot of the, the information that I have that went into the books and, and all of that, um, you know, I would occasionally find a healer who worked with crystals, red cards, things like that, occasionally. Um, but, you know, now it's becoming more and more common. A couple of years ago, I kind of did another little tour around, uh, visited some of the places that I had, you know, collected from in 2012, 2013. And, uh, you know, I found more people working with, uh, you know, I met a lady who was working with runes, uh, which is pretty interesting um, and definitely not a part of our folk culture, even though it's a part of our sort of ancestral folk culture. Um, but she, she loved reading runes. And so she incorporated that into her, what I would call traditional Ozark practice. So um, very interesting blending of traditions. So I actually enjoy seeing that stuff. I like seeing the, the evolution and how new things kind of come in. And Ozarkers have always been very renowned for their cunning in general. Um, and so we've always been a people that really had to rely upon what we had at hand, what we could gather off the land, what we could find, what we could repurpose. So uh, healers and magical practitioners, especially here in the Ozarks, uh, they will take any practice and make it their own pretty quickly. It's a really interesting area to look at. Uh, I, I, I remember somebody who was involved with um, Alexander's. It was like a, a sort of a well-known sort of figure in Wicca in the 70s and they they used to always say that alexandrian wicker was a bit like a poor man's version of magic but they meant it in the sense that you know it was very eclectic and and it, it took it took all sorts of different things and put them into the cauldron sometimes literally i'm sure and uh you know did all sorts of you know it's something you know combined everything they could do in a very sort of utilitarian way right right yeah and folk magic for me at least i mean that's kind of 
you know, the heart of the folk magic tradition is being able to uh, utilize whatever you have on hand. And I think that is one of the strengths of Ozark folk magic and healing in particular. And, you know, I've had several teachers who worked with lots of tools and plants and lots of things. And then I've had teachers who didn't work with anything, who they were able to heal people of serious diseases, um, as well as a whole host of other magical needs and things like that by just sitting with them quietly. Uh, one of my favorite teachers who was probably the most influential on me, she uh, at one point, uh, she got kind of upset with me because I kept asking her about um, different tools. So, you know, what she used, if she used special spoons to stir her um, medicines and things like that, and she kind of got upset with me and she stopped me and she said, you know, as a, as a healer, you should be able to do everything you need to do in a completely empty jail cell. And that has always stuck with me. And that is a very important part of my practice. You know, this idea of the really all you need, at least from an Ozark perspective, is your connection to your inborn gift, the connection to this sort of innate flow, this innate river of magic in the world around you. And as long as you're able to connect to that, you don't need anything. You don't need even eyes or ears or a tongue. You don't need any of that to be able to, you know, work magic, work miracles. So that's always stuck with me. And I think that that is one of the advantages of folk practices like this. Um, and I think in a, lot of a lot of times folk practices sort of get uh, set aside and kind of put down because of their simplicity. But I think a lot of it is people you know, not understanding the, the, the real complexity behind this sort of simple exterior and you use a, a very striking analogy and i was reminded of it in just what you were saying there about the river and it's a you know that you've got this river flow you've got this idea of this river flowing and that if you're lying floating on your back you could sort of move anywhere you like up and down the river side to side but if you had like a, a constructed a boat or had a, a way of steering it and so on and or you know if you could keep your hand on the tiller it could you could drive it around so you could direct it a bit more you know precisely but but still you still got to go with the flow the flow is the important thing and and would you say like for the in the ozark tradition is it a connection with the the landscape the, the nature the the, the forest from reading the book <laughs> I had this image of like you know the forests what just went on and on and on and uh, you know and there's like a the, the a sense of this the forest as a sort of sort of uh, very much a thing in itself uh, um a person in itself a being in itself which you develop this relationship with is is that is that the, have i got the right idea there yeah absolutely the the landscape has always been um a huge influence upon the practice uh, pretty early on, I mean, it developed in a sort of practical way. Hillfolk really had to have a good relationship with the land in order to survive. So they had to be able to find water and they had to be able to preserve water sources. And so there, there, uh, you know, over time, a lot of sort of folk beliefs and taboos arose surrounding the natural landscape. So for instance, it's, you know, you don't ever plug up natural springs. You don't, you don't mess with them at all. You, you protect them, you clean them. 
um, or else you'll risk um, incurring the wrath of the land spirits that dwell there. Especially the, we have what we call the little people who are, uh, it's an amalgam of European fairy traditions and indigenous fairy traditions. And so we have the little people who are sort of protectors of nature. And so the, the natural landscape, especially, you know, medicinal plants, things like that has always been a part of the practice I've met traditional herbalists who knew upwards of three, 400 different individual plants to use. And of course, over the, over the years, our biodiversity, unfortunately has, you know, been lessened due to, you know, urbanization, things like that, but we're still a very natural area. There's still very rural areas around here. Um, you know, where I am, I live in town. But even here, you know, I'm surrounded by the natural landscape. We have you know, 10, 11 different parks within 15 minutes of me. Uh, so it's still a huge part of the folk culture. And it's also it's a huge part of the practice itself. But there's this understanding also that that sort of innate flow of magic isn't just found in the natural landscape as we think of it. One of my teachers, she lived in town. And so I asked her one time about her connection. How does she stay connected to the, the landscape? And she just laughed at me and she said, well, our houses are built on earth. Our houses are built out of earth. Uh, so there's this understanding that this sort of flow of magic, we think of it as, you know, just being in these sort of pristine uh, wilderness areas. And of course the flow may be stronger there but it is you know the flow is also in urban areas as well it's in building it's it's in wherever we are and so the purpose of this sort of folk magic tradition is not only to connect to the sort of natural landscape as a provider still but also being able to connect to that innate flow wherever you are because you know if you're a healer are you are you always going to be in the woods sometimes you're going to be in town and somebody's going to ask you for healing so are you going to have to take them all the way all the way out to the forest which i've met healers who do that they have their specific power places that they've used to heal people but um i think you know in general this worldview is is uh, recognizing the flow of this magic through all things and that really we're all a part of nature whether we're in town or in the woods yeah and you use the word little people there and to to people in this side of the in this part of the world that's sort of inexplicably inexplicably not inexplicably essentially essentially um associated with 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 island uh, you know if you say the little people in this part of the world uh, we we immediately think of leprechauns if you lived in Greece, right. if you lived in yeah specifically it, it, it's a reference i mean the word leprechaun is actually a celtic word people are surprised you know people tend to think of getting leprechauns and you know when little green suits and things and little top hats but actually the word leprechaun goes back a very long way so but uh, in other parts of the world they, they say different things i think uh, the sort of Cherokee, they or, or the sort of native people in that part of the world, they also had a tradition of, of they didn't call them little people. I think they called what they called the. I'm going to mispronounce this horribly, so I, I, I apologize in advance. They called like the the Pukwudgies or something like that. Is that the, ch the Cherokee actually do have the little people? They're the Yamwe Chunsti, uh, which literally means. Uh, little people in Cherokee. Wow. Uh, so, so our little people, Ozark little people, is an amalgam of 
the sort of Celtic European um, fairy traditions and also mostly Cherokee, but then also Muscogee Creek, a little bit of Uchi and Kawasati. So basically people of the southeast, eastern part of the, the U.S. that would have blended traditions in Appalachia before removal to Oklahoma. So yeah, the Cherokee still have the little people. And so um, uh, we have, it's interesting to look at our Ozark folk beliefs and be able to see exactly where um, our folk, folk beliefs were influenced from, from the Cherokee specifically. And uh, around here, you know, the little people, that's still one of those things that, you know, I've met farmers, old farmers in, in the Ozarks who still leave a portion of their crops to the little people, or they won't remove big boulders or, you know, solitary trees out of their fields because those belong to the little people. And so around here, you know, it's still a very important part of the culture. And in, in some cases, you know, people won't even talk about the little people. Um, they won't, they won't even say the net, the word, you know, um, uh, or else, you know, they will risk um, incurring the wrath of the little people. Yeah, that's that's a fascinating point because the the I mean I very much doubt if the Cherokee have, have adopted the word little people from Irish immigrants in, in in that part of the world. So there's a like a parallel sort of tradition there, and um, I know I, I noticed that. I mean I was intrigued by the um, there's a I mean in 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 England back in 1700 and so on, you had like you had a tradition of people identified and self-identifying as like, they call themselves charm doctors or fairy doctors and uh you know and they sort of work with the little people and uh, but they again they're these sort of uncanny sort of ambiguous figures because there's an element of well you know how you know these these um these the, the fae how how close are they related to the fallen angels and uh, you know right. there's an ambiguity about them and actually there was another there was an account in um in one of the books where some where you there's also there's always like, like a barter there's always give and take i mean nietzsche says that morality began with the marketplace and i think he, he was onto something there because there's always this story you know there's always this um narrative about giving and taking and and um there's there's one narrative you relate where somebody has the, the eyesight in their left eye they lose that in making this kind of bargain or with the, some arrangement with the, the little people and i've read i've read that narrative somewhere else from like from england from you know mm -hmm. back in in relation to one of these charm doctors or fairy doctors so that's, that's fascinating how for whatever the explanation is, <laughs> the, whatever the explanation may, is, is it cultural, social, sociological, or psychological, or something beyond all three, and then something beyond that? Um, where, where, where does that? You know, where, where does that narrative lie? It's the, it, totally intriguing. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting seeing some of those those crossovers because you know I, I I've encountered lots of that. You know, there in in Ozark folk tales, there are fairy marriages. Uh, marriages with the little people, things like that. And so I think that a lot of these sort of cultural beliefs, you know, definitely have an ancestry in, you know, European places. Um, in the Ozarks specifically, you know, we have a lot of German influence as well as sort of pan-Celtic influence as well, well mostly uh, Welsh, Cornish, things like that, yeah. Scottish. Um, and so there's definitely a sort of lineage of these folk beliefs being passed down. Um, so it's not unusual, I don't think, to see them pop up, but it's very interesting. Um, and I think that, you know, 
I don't know. I, as a person who frequently works with the other world and spirits of the land and things like that, I, I think that these are cross-cultural beings that sort of pop up um, in different places at different times. So, um, yeah, I think that wherever there are people, there are probably going to be uh, the Thay as well. Um, so when you started writing the book, how did the like the Ozark practitioners kind of react to it? Were, were they because uh, you know I know in a lot of sort of occult or you know um, folk traditions, there's a kind of like a unwritten rule almost about money making or you know um, you know in in regards to healing and things like that. But also, I'd imagine possibly that that was a that came up when you spoke about writing a book. Maybe I don't know. Yeah, I, I went back and forth with myself um, for quite a while uh, debating whether or not I wanted to write about this stuff at all. Um, because, you know, historically in, in the Ozarks, there have been taboos against, you know, how you pass down certain information. Um, you know, sort of spells and rituals, verbal charms, things like that typically are passed down orally. They are never written down. It said that if you write down charms and verbal charms, prayers, things like that, um, it will, it will kill the charm. It will, it will kill the magic. And so that is sort of the traditional view. Um, today, you know, I, the, the, the healers that I worked with, most of them, I would say 90, nearly 90% of the healers that I worked with were so excited that somebody was interested that the old taboos sort of flew out the window at that point. Um, the situation with at least the very, very, very traditional forms of Ozark healing and folk magic, um, there are so few practitioners that, you know, generally speaking, most of this stuff is just dying off with, with practitioners at this point. There's not enough people that are interested in it. Um, typically old timers will be very cautious about who they talk to. So they don't necessarily want to pass down things outside of a family. Um, stuff like that. So in a lot of cases, I was the trusted person that they were willing to pass things to. So I always tell people that, you know, the, the information in both of the books and the second book is a spell book. So spe specifically the rituals and things in that book, this is just the tip of the iceberg. And, <laughs> you know, that kind of surprises people because, you know, I, I've written <laughs> a lot of words about uh, the, the folk magic and healing. But this is really just the tip of the iceberg. I, a lot of the stuff that I have been passed isn't stuff that I'm willing to publish. It's not stuff that I'm willing to even teach to people. Um, so this is really the sort of foundational practices. The spells and rituals and verbal charms that I include in the spell book are all verbal charms that I was passed in non-traditional ways. And so I am comfortable passing them further on in non-traditional ways. And so, you know, it's, it's hard to really pinpoint, you know, you know, this is the way it's done. I, I always like to say there are as many practices in the Ozarks as there are practitioners. And that's really true to the story. You might meet one person who is very traditional and won't pass down verbal charms except to... A, somebody of the opposite gender who's younger, which is a very traditional way, um, passing down opposite genders and op, um, older to younger. Um, so there are some people that still operate in that way, but I will say for the most part, um, the practitioners that still have something 
that still have some powers. And a lot of cases are very desperate to pass those things down. So I, I always encourage people, please, you know, talk to your elders, talk to your family members, even if they don't have any magical spells or anything like that, just talk to them. You'll be you'll sometimes be surprised by what they do know. So really, you know, I, I pass down things in a very non-traditional way, but it, it's kind of funny saying non-traditional. Um, we consider the, these things to be non-traditional, but in the Ozarks, it, it actually, in some cases, has been very traditional. So yeah, it's a very diverse area. And so there's lots of room um, to practice in lots of different sorts of ways and to pass down information in different ways. So I, I have a lineage of practice that I personally have, but then I've also, you know, inherited practices from lots of other lineages of the Ozarks as well. Um, so yeah, the, the information that's, that's published out there is all information that I feel comfortable publishing. Um, and I will say, you know, while I was worried about publishing this stuff, for the most part, every person that has sort of come up to me, especially Ozarkers, they are excited that this stuff is out there. There hasn't been anything written about Ozark folk culture, especially folk magic, um, since 1947. Yeah, that's a <laughs> so <lot. laughs> it's, it's an area that is underrepresented, under-researched. And so for the most part, especially with the Ozarkers, there is no criticism. Um, they are excited to see their culture revived, revitalized. They're excited to see practices, especially, you know, people who are, have been a part of other sort of European traditional witchcraft movements, but now want something closer to home. They're excited about it. Um, the criticism I've had has come from um, non-Ozarkers, uh, typically uh, a part of sort of more ceremonial magic groups <laughs> who um, like to criticize the sort of non-conventional uh, rituals and ingredients that I sometimes use, uh, forgetting that Ozarkers have always used what they had on hand. So if all you have are dollar store tea lights, then that's what you're going to use, <laughs> you know? Um, so I, I, I'm pleasantly surprised by the reception of the books and the classes and all the other stuff. And I'm, I'm just moving forward full steam. It definitely feels very accessible uh, compared to, I guess, one of the criticisms you could have about, say, Golden Dawn or OTO, like we mentioned before, is the kind of highly academic nature of it isn't it you have to learn a lot um to or you have to absorb a lot of of, of uh, old wordy books as it were whereas the ozark stuff seems to be a lot more accessible it seems to be something you could learn a lot easier and 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 sort of uh, apply it in a much more um you know simpler way i suppose than you know having to go through these elaborate rituals learning names of angels and demons and, right yeah uh, it's it feels like uh it feels like something designed to be used um easily if that makes sense yeah there's definitely less of a learning curve but i also like to describe it as sort of the magic of daily life and to go back to the sort of that understanding of that sort of innate flow of magic through all things really a 
a, a huge part of this sort of Ozark folk worldview is utilizing whatever you have on hand. And so that doesn't just mean repurposing household objects for magical use or anything like that. It also means repurposing the processes of your life to, to be magic, to, to, you know, be for a healing purpose. So for instance, um, one, one lady that I met, she, as a part of her sort of healing practice, the behind the closed doors healing practice, whenever she washed dishes in her sink, she would put her clients on those dishes. So she would name dishes for her clients. She would pray over her clients so that as she was washing the dishes, she was actually washing her clients, her patients clean as well. And I think that it, that's a very powerful ritual to be able to sort of merge this magic with daily life. And, you know, it's, it's utilizing whatever you have on hand, it's recycling things. And so one of my teachers said, you know, if you are practicing and you get angry, use the anger, <laughs> you know, use, use whatever you have on hand to sort of do what you need to do. Because at the end of the day, all of this stuff is a part of that flow. You know, there's nothing in our lives that isn't connected to that flow of magic. And so because everything is connected to that flow of magic, there's nothing in our lives that can't be used for a magical purpose. And so you see that just to give another example, you know, one old traditional ritual for cursing, specifically like retribution work, which is, I know, always a taboo subject amongst people. But in the Ozarks, it's not people cursed as well as healed. But, you know, traditional curse that I encountered was, you know, whenever uh, a, the, the old man that I was talking to um, at the time, whenever he wanted to, um, he called lame or harm his enemies, he would go out and chop some wood and he would name logs for his enemies. And as he chopped through them, he was chopping up their power or he was chopping up their influence over his life or his patience or whatever it might be. So I think that that is one of those sort of really interesting areas for people, which makes it very accessible. Um, it, it makes it sort of to where everything in your life can potentially be a ritual and can potentially be, you know, a healing act. There's lots of uh, lots of knowledge about the landscape and and plant life as well, though, isn't there? Which I which is something I again I know nothing about. I mean, you mentioned um, cold pepper. Well, I was interested. You mentioned that because he, he comes from this part of the world. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I've been to the village actually that he he lived in. So that's an interesting. It, it was interesting hearing. You know that that was an important text. He's a, he's like a kind of a person who identified lots of different herbs and used them a very very long time ago and um and uh, and he actually had i think he had a garden he had a special garden he, he attended so again that was interesting how but it's, it's more of a, like a wilderness you have your own garden in the ozarks but also you have the the garden of nature itself the the forests and and sort of go hunting you know or looking for various things and being able to identify that and and uh, know what it is and uh, that in itself is a skill it's, it's, it's knowledge and a skill isn't it yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, as with most things in the Ozarks, it's a skill that's often passed down orally. Um, so the, you know, the plants that I have been taught to use and to identify, I was taught by going out with a person and they would show me, um, they would show me the plants and then they would have me identify the plants without their help and things like that. 
And so I have, you know, uh, very limited knowledge of plants. I, I, that's one of the areas that I'm pretty good at, but compared to some of the herbalists that I've known here, I, I have, uh, you know, I don't have that big of a knowledge, but I, I think that it's one of those really interesting areas to look at because it is a, uh, it is a, a tr sort of true amalgam of European and indigenous folk beliefs. Um, so I would say probably 70 to 80% of our botanical plants that we use for healing um, come from indigenous sources. So they are non-European plants. Um, the other sort of 30% are plants that would have been brought over with Europeans as a part of kitchen gardens, herb gardens, things like that. But the vast majority of the plants, you know, we would have known nothing about. And so our knowledge of this, these plants would have come down, you know, from indigenous people. And it's very interesting how this sort of knowledge has been passed, you know, one generation to the next. And, you know, today, unfortunately, is being sort of lost, but there is a, a resurgence and in interest in, in um, medicinal plants and things like that, which excites me. So people are starting to get interested in it again. But it's one of those areas that I, I don't think will ever get the full amount of respect that it deserves, not just because um, it's, you know, a very complicated system, but you know, people don't understand the sources of the system either. So, for instance, um, I've met Ozark folk healers and a part of Ozark folk healing, you know, traditional healers use the humoral system, the four humor system. Um, in a very complicated way, mixed with astrology a lot of times. Um, the farmer's almanac is an Ozarker's best friend for that reason. Um, and so a lot of the sort of medicines that are being crafted, it seems like just plants thrown in some water and you cook it um, from the outside. But underneath that, traditional healers are often using you know, they're diagnosing based upon the four humor system. They're diagnosing using sort of cold pepper, uh, hot, cold, wet, dry correspondences, things like that. Um, but that's the stuff that you don't always see um, unless you talk to the actual healer, in which case they will tell you these things. And so it's it's fascinating for me to be able to tell people sort of the history behind astrological medicine and the history behind the four humors system to be able to tell people that, you know, this is what these sort of quote unquote ignorant hillbillies were using out in the hills, you know, these very complicated systems. And so, you know, I, that's one of those areas that is always very interesting to me. And I always really like talking to people about because it is such a complicated system and um, people people don't recognize that so and plants of course that's one of those areas that is very complicated because you know there are poisons there are medicines there are poisons that are used as medicines <laughs> you know there are all sorts of things out there um, and unfortunately a lot of that information is kind of dying out these days and and ginseng is is particularly prized i was I, again this this exposes my dreadful ignorance I, I was a bit surprised to find it, it grew at all in that part of the world but um but well, yeah there we are but uh, that just shows what i know but but also what really struck me about the the ginseng 
narratives or the the practices connected with that it's a, it reminded very you, you give a, an account or a traditional story at least of somebody having a, it being like a you know it's 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 resemblance to the human form being important and mm-hmm. it's sort of being kept in a, a spirit box and all you know and placed under the um the pillow and you, you give it you talk to it you have this conversation with it and ask it to you know help you find more ginseng or something like that and then hopefully your dream about it and uh, well at least that's the intent and and that 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 narrative i mean you can trace that to european narratives about the mandragora route right Right. I mean that they, they they were I mean though that that's that was that fascinated me that totally intrigued me and and also like you know that there's a folklore in terms of like you do touch on it very briefly like uh, sort of folkloric creatures like the booger and the uh, like the snorfus I mean I was fascinated with this the snorfus for a number of different reasons because you got like a a white stag and it's seen as being a, a the ozarks would say a, a token or a bad omen it's sort of a sinister thing but um the, the white stag is very important i mean you can trace that i mean you've got the um you've got thomas the rhymer you've got the narrative of thomas the rhymer who's a, a bard and he's taken off to El, the elf fame by the queen of the elves and and uh, but she, he returns returns changed with the ability to to be a bard with the gift of uh, song and um she tells him well i will come and get you in the end when it's your time when you're out hunting in the forest you will see a white stag and a white doe and you must follow them and that will lead you back and you'll be with me forever and that can be traced back even further to the celts because they, it was taboo to um to kill a white stag because it was seen as like a, a sign from the gods so mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, that that really fascinated me because you can trace the, the mimic the sort of cultural meme there back a very very long way. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely, and a lot of the a lot of the traditional stories, not just about the snuffus, but you know about white animals in general, uh, white all white animals, and then all black animals. Uh, a lot of the stories you can trace back to you know. Uh, European origins, pan sort of Celtic origins, almost directly. And yeah, you mentioned the booger. So the boogers are, it's a mythological creature here in those arts, but the root of booger goes back to bogey, or the boogie, you know. Um, so they are, you know, shapeshifters that can turn into these all black animals. And they're almost always deadly. You know, if you come across them, you want to get out of there as quickly as possible. Um, there's definitely a sort of demonic element to it, which kind of goes back to the boogies or the bogies, um, sort of, you know, impish quality, but then also this otherworldly quality. In some stories, they are actually witches, so witches can turn into boogers. Um, and then, but that's the, those stories sort of deviate also because there's also stories about witches who can just shapeshift uh, into different animals, owls usually, things like that. But uh, yeah, so a lot of our traditional stories, you know, you can trace directly back to um, ancient stories, which that, that it always fascinates me, you know, to be able to listen to a story from, you know, a storyteller who is illiterate, of whom I've met many, um, telling a story that has been told in different versions for probably thousands of years not fully knowing the origin of the stories but 
you know, passed down word of mouth from person to person over the generations. It, it's just amazing to me. Yeah. Um, in the book, you you sort of refer a lot to the power. And um, I was I was kind of interested. In There's in fact a chapter heading: um, How does you know how to gain the power? And I think it, it is it implied. Would you say that um, there's a lot of kind of inheritance of power, or you know, one is born with power rather than uh, uh, how do you you know how do you sort of uh, define the power kind of thing? And how you know is it a gift or is it something you can obtain or? Well, it's kind of all of the above. <laughs> so traditionally, and we're talking sort of old Ozark folk culture, typically the power was something that you were either born with or that you passed down to somebody else from somebody who was probably born with it or was passed the power. So in a traditional sense, it, it is seen as something very tangible. And so sometimes it is sort of likened to a well or a pitcher, like a pitcher for water um, that is inside of a person. And so when you are born, if you are born with the gift or the power, it means that your well is sort of full of this magical sort of water from that, that spring of innate power in the world. And so it means, you know, your well is full at birth. Um, but you can also have your well filled up and that is, you know, somebody passing down their power. But it, in a traditional sense, it was seen as if something very tangible. So, for instance, um, you know, there are old beliefs about how many times you can pass down your gift to somebody. So sometimes people say you can only pass it once which means that the person with their well filled will pour all of this water into their apprentice or whoever they're passing it down for. Um, so the person they're passing it to will have the power, but they will no longer have it. Um, sometimes, you know, you can pass it down three times before your well is empty. And so in the old days, healers would wait until old age and then enter a sort of retirement where, you know, by that point, they've probably identified somebody who would be suitable. Um, a lot of times it has to do with a person's cunning or their memory, uh, being able to remember lots of things from just hearing, because again, you have to collect these practices orally. Um, so they will then pass down their power completely and retire. You know, all of this power is in their apprentice now. They will help them learn, you know, the craft and all this other stuff. And then they'll just sort of sit back and retire. Um, today, it's a little bit different. You know, the practitioners that I've met, most of them don't have the sort of view of the, the, the physicality of the gift. Um, in most cases, you know, personally, I believe that it is latent within all people because everybody, again, is connected to that innate flow of magic in the world. So I think for more the modern pr practitioners that I've met, um, there's this idea that it's sort of anybody can have it awakened within them, but sometimes people are more likely to be you know, better at it. Like, you know, anybody can learn to draw a little bit, but you know, that doesn't make you an artist, <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, so it's still very, it's still seen as something that's very important to the work to the actual work of the folk healing and folk magic, but it's not seen as something or, you know, you can lose it, things like that. Um, 
And over the years, there are lots of other ways. So like I said, typically people were born with it or passed it, but there are also other ways. You can steal the power, you can find the power, you can buy the power, you can, you know, there's lots of different ways of gaining this sort of power. Today, I think it's more viewed as something that's sort of unlocked or sort of a light switch flipping on and off. Um, sometimes it takes a person with the power to sort of activate it within somebody else. Um, but it's not, it's typically not seen as being so um, tangible anymore. It sort of reminds me slightly of um, sort of transcendental kind of beliefs, doesn't it? It's uh, this kind of idea of uh, a sort of a, plow, a power flowing through everybody and you can access it in different ways. I know in transcendental meditation, that's certainly the key. There's, you know, there's this flowing river that you access and, you know, it, it certainly chimes quite you know quite you know closely to that to what you're describing uh, have you uh come across that kind of comparison before or yeah and you know i've kind of it's one of those things that it's it's um hard to define exactly so of course you know i i use a lot of words to describe something that's indescribable really you know um but yeah, there is, there's definitely connections to, I think, other systems as well. I've had, I've had some Druid friends tell me that it's very close to their sorts of practices and things. And really, it's interesting to see how this sort of connection to nature, connection to that flow has manifested in traditional religion in the Ozarks. There's always been this view that the Ozark, Ozark people are very religiously conservative, which is actually fairly recent. Uh, only since about the 40s and 50s have been people been very, very religiously conservative. Traditional religion in the Ozarks was much closer to this sort of connection to the Holy Spirit or connection to God within all things. It was much more sort of pantheistic almost, um, but not quite there. <laughs> Uh, there's definitely, you know, the folk religion here definitely had a huge influence on the magical practices and vice versa as well. Magical practices, I think, had a huge influence upon the religion as well. Um, traditional religion from sort of Ozark perspective was very simple. Um, it was usually, you know, a person's connection to, you know, the God of, that who, who is an owl creation, that sort of thing. And that definitely influenced this sort of idea of the flow of this sort of innate power through the world. I say flow of innate magic or flow of innate energy, but I've also heard people say, you know, that that is, you know, God within all things. So of course, language changes depending on who you're talking to. Um, I like to refer to things in a little bit more neutral sense, um, just because, you know, I'm not particularly religious in that way. <laughs> so neutrality is uh, a little bit better for me. But I, I've definitely, you know, encountered this sort of I don't even know what to call it, this indescribable connection uh, in lots of different traditions. And I think it is sort of less a less of a sort of uh, religious offering and more of a human offering. Um, you know, it's a connection that we have made as humans uh, rather than, you know, from any sort of religious leaning. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. So the could could technically somebody that's never been to the ozark region and um picks up your book say over here in england could they you know um effectively practice ozark magic um you know or is it do you feel like it's kind of region locked almost 
No, I, I think that, you know, one of the things that I think the Ozark perspective has to offer is this, you know, we've talked about it a lot, this idea of simplicity and what it means to heal, what it means to practice magic. And I think that that is something that, from my perspective, that we really have to offer all folk magic traditions, uh, no matter where you're from. And because the Ozark, Ozark practice is an amalgam of so many different things, you know, pretty much anybody can sort of pick it up and be able to identify with it. Um, I had a couple uh, for the first book last year, I had a couple of students in some of my virtual classes who were Muslim and they specifically North African. And they were so interested because there were so many correspondences between the things that I was talking about and North African Islamic folk magic and healing. And so that that for me is really exciting when somebody not from the Ozarks, not even from a sort of Western magical background is able to pick it up and be able to see parallels. And for me, from my own sort of personal perspective, I want to encourage people to sort of look at this as a human inheritance um, that sort of goes beyond cultural leanings and cultural lines and boundaries and things like that. So yeah, I want anybody that is interested to be able to pick up the books and learn something from it. It isn't a closed practice. Like I said, there are practices that I will never teach and never write about. Um, and that's just that. <laughs> I'm happy sharing all of the things that I am able to share and all of the stuff that I can't share, I won't. So that's that. <laughs> that's great. Um, thank you so much for giving us uh, so much of your time. I, I appreciate that. Um, so let us know what you've got coming up next. I mean, you've, obviously you've just released a book, but uh, do you have any plans for further work? Yeah, so this summer I'm, I'm mostly doing some stuff with the book, I'm teaching some in-person classes, um, I'm doing some interviews and some book talks and things like that. Um, I'll probably be doing another series of virtual classes this fall. I really like teaching these virtual classes. It's a way for me to sort of isolate big topics within Ozark folk magic and healing and be able to actually cover them in a, a meaningful way um, because it is such a sort of complicated and diverse area. I like being able to take little bites off of it as these virtual classes. So. I'll probably be doing another series of those in the fall. Um, I am writing still. I, I have some other stuff in the works that unfortunately I can't really talk about yet, <laughs> but I am still writing and um, I have lots and lots more ideas of things that I'd like to cover. So awesome. I don't think I'll ever stop. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't. It's, it's, a, it's a really interesting book and uh, both. Uh, books i should say um and yeah uh, thanks so much for, again for coming on the show thank you for having me yeah thank you and we are back uh how did you find that one mr satir well, like I said, uh, it was not my not my natural territory in in every sense of the word, and but that's that's the delight of it that uh, you you can always learn. Learning is an on lifelong and you know ongoing thing, and you get introduced to these new ideas, concepts, experiences, and uh, and you can see how they all link together on a much deeper level. And uh, and uh, that, that uh, again was very much my experience of uh, benefiting from the book. 
it felt almost like a knowledge exchange at one point. The two of you were kind of uh, going backwards and forth on, um, on that, that could have gone on a much longer. Yeah, if I it could have, it, now it could have. If I hadn't now, brandished now the whip, <laughs> it could have gone on a much longer. And and our, and our very discerning, very discerning listeners have been robbed of that experience. <laughs> and uh, I think again. <laughs> <laughs> Again, you know, culture has been, you know, culture here has been sort of, you know, robbed of something special. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, but, uh, yeah. Mark's annoyed because I uh, I have a structure for the show and I forced him back onto the structure was at mid mid uh, swapping of uh, demons or, or, you know. But, uh, the, the, the Fae, the Fae get mentioned. I mean, in the Oz, Ozark uh, traditions, in the folklore, there's the... The, we we find the sort of the, the a creature called the the booger related to like the idea of the the boogeyman and um, but the booger you get like booger you can get you get booger dogs booger cats uh, booger booger raccoons possums I think get mentioned and um, even I I remember even a, in, in the book itself there's a reference to a, a booger turkey which sounds like a particularly scary particularly scary because the booger is this. Uh, Always malefic, aggressive, um, and pitch black sort of uh, creature that um, sort of uh, haunts the mountains there, and uh, and and also there's a and, and people living in this side of the world in on, in England, the United Kingdom, especially particularly in the north, might recognise the, the the bogle because the bogle is is the same. It's a a, a big black scary creature that takes a form. With an animal, usually you know, like a, a donkey, a calf, cow, something like that, and um, and uh, causes that gets mis- gets up to mischief and all sorts. And so uh, there we are. So the again, so it looks like um, there's these parallels there, and and, uh, and uh, cultural mimic parallels there. So you could say it bogles the mind. It does. Bo- it does. Bo- <laughs> that's a that's a kind of joke on my level. That's the sort of <laughs> it's that's it's, that's my job. Yeah, sorry. I've, I've <laughs> That's my it. job, that. Uh, yeah. I've, uh, I've taken it. Anyway, if you want to catch up with us online at Sitting Now on all the socials, um, YouTube is Sitting Now. Uh, but yeah, come and say hello, subscribe, like, do all that business. Uh, we love it. So we will see you next week. Um, I'm going to start trying to release these on a more regular day. So I'm thinking probably Wednesdays I'm going to start releasing these episodes because just so it's a, a regular thing um, I don't like them being released on uneven days so I think Wednesday will be our new uh, Wednesday morning GMT so it'll be nice and early it will be nice and fresh for you in the Americas um, when you wake up on a Wednesday morning so that's my plan for moving forward well, whether I stick to that plan <laughs> is another thing but I'm going to try so yeah uh, we will see you next week um, with Mr. Oh, next week was going to be an interesting one. Um, so I'm not going to say what it is because I, it's still up in the air. But uh, we do have the other stuff booked as well. So we will see you next week regardless. And uh, until next time. Bye. I should, I should leave you on 10 Turks. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Leave, leave them hanging. <laughs>